RiskWatch is a due diligence and compliance podcast featuring interviews with leading compliance, investigations, and research professionals to shed light on global corruption and compliance-related issues. RiskWatch is brought to you by VCheck Global, a business-to-business provider of due diligence, background checks, employment screening, document retrieval, and specialized research of both business entities and individuals. Seth Harlan of RiskWatch here, joined by Randy Bullard, Morrison & Forrester's Miami office. Randy's a partner in the corporate department and co-chair of the firm's Latin America desk. Randy, thanks for joining RiskWatch. No, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. To kick off, could you please just share a bit about what you do at Morrison & Forrester? Sure. I joined the firm three years ago. And as you mentioned, I'm the co-chair of the Latin American desk. Our practice primarily focuses on foreign direct investment mergers and acquisitions, private equity and venture capital into Latin America. We typically represent U.S. investors or investors from Europe or international funds from Asia in their investments into Latin America, both strategic and financial investors. So at what stage in the deal process do clients typically reach out to you? Very early on, for example, today, right at the beginning of a process, we are engaged by the investor at the very, very beginning of a process when diligence even hasn't commenced, to do an analysis of what are the hot button issues? What should we be looking at? How should we structure the diligence process? And what outside advisors, including local councils, should be engaged in country to evaluate the target or the investment itself? So just to piggyback off that, one hot issue recently has been green energy. It's been attracting tremendous investor attention globally. In Latin America, it's no exception. Is the majority of deal activity you're seeing centered around this traditional trifecta of solar, wind, and geothermal? Or are e-fuels like green hydrogen driving deals? It's still, from our perspective, part of the traditional trifecta. We're seeing a lot in the wind space in particular but are seeing some solar deals as well. I think the others still are in their nascent stages. They're still highly capital intensive. There are a lot of solar and wind projects that have been under construction for several years and are at the point in time in their development where an exit transaction makes sense for the founders or the sponsors. So I think the development trajectory of traditional assets dictates that they're still more popular at this point. In terms of your Latin America work, so something I've noticed is that larger countries in the region like Brazil, Mexico, Colombia, they're drawing the bulk of media attention, especially concerning ESG and sustainable investing. What do you think are some overlooked markets that are deserving attention? I think Chile in particular, I wouldn't say it was overlooked. I mean, there's a lot of regulation and legal activity in Chile that's making that an attractive market. I would think it would be more of the smaller countries. The big dog in the ring, so to speak, are the ones that get the most attention because the assets are larger, uh, the opportunities are greater, the number of consumers that can be accessed is greater. But the smaller markets, Costa Rica, Panama, Peru, to name a few, I think are somewhat overlooked, but that's more of a size of the market issue. It's certainly something that is still important in those regions. But for outside investors, they typically do target the larger markets just for scalability and access to consumers. Any investors who are lacking any regional experience, like I know you do a lot of advising with clients operating in Europe that are interested in coming into Latin America, what countries 
would you advise them in terms of providing the smoothest uh, landing? Each country has its own specific challenges and risks. A few years ago, I would say Mexico is the easiest point of entry, but certainly we've seen over time political change and certain populist initiatives and political moves that have made Mexico a more difficult investment target. Obviously, it's an incredibly attractive market with 120 million people, NAFTA access, a tax regime that's very familiar to navigate to U.S. investors. Each one is somewhat different, and the the challenge of investing in Latin America is the pace of political, economic, and social change is very rapid. Countries fall in and out of favor depending on current economic and macroeconomic indicators, as well as political change and political movements within the various countries. So it, it depends on the particular time. Obviously, Venezuela and Argentina are the most challenging markets just because of the inability to access capital that's been invested in the country and to repatriate it abroad and certain dysfunctionalities in local operating regimes. But I wouldn't say that there are necessarily markets that are easier than others. There are particular challenges and different regulatory regimes to each. When you're working on deals, how's the due diligence intelligence that you receive or even that the client shares with you support your work? It's critical to the process. I mean, it's, it's what we do first. I was thinking about this question earlier today and thinking about it in the context of ESG due diligence, for example. Five years ago, 10 years ago, there would be pushback from a target or a seller in particular to doing anti-corruption diligence or to provide reps and warranties with respect to anti-corruption issues. The theory being that these countries and these local owners were not subject to U.S. law. They had no ability to determine whether they were compliant or not. That argument and that hurdle has gone away. Now everyone accepts that For example, anti-corruption, anti-money laundering, sanctions, and OFAC analysis is something that's done as a threshold matter at the beginning of a process, and that absolute revs must be given on these issues, and that every investor, whether it's from the UK or the US or even in-country, expects these issues to be covered. Also, the level of detail of the diligence has gone up, usually outside advisors, accounting firms. Accounting firms have their own arms now that do systems testing, internal controls testing, risk assessment analysis on these issues. And it's never an issue anymore. It's the first thing you do. It's part of the kickoff call and everyone knows it's coming. Just in terms of being able to tailor the due diligence to specific countries and sectors, we know each country you mentioned presents different challenges. Mm -hmm. What are maybe one or two major compliance and reputational risks for ESG investment in Latin America that you always put in front of your clients? Well, it's always anti-corruption and money laundering. I mean, particularly, and it depends upon the industry that you're in. We've done a lot of work on behalf of financial institutions that are investing in the region. And obviously, this is top of mind for them. For the PE investor and the VC investor, the same. They're taking money from public institutions. They themselves may be a public institution. So anti-corruption and anti-bribery is at the top of the list. But also, it's ESG. Let's not forget the social and government element of it, too. Obviously, issues of child labor labor conditions, supply chain issues are huge reputational issues for any large company or any PE company. So I think that those have become much more to the forefront, working conditions, child labor, involvement with the local community. Do I enter the place and leave it in a better place when I leave is an important issue and a huge reputational issue for particularly U.S. investors. 
Just domestically looking at the countries in the region, do you think the COVID-19 pandemic played a role in raising awareness, whether it's among just the general population or the government concerning ESG issues? I think so. I mean, that's a very good question. I mean, if you look at how the economies are structured in most countries in Latin America, it's something like 45% of the population has what we call close contact jobs, Mm. meaning that they have to do it in person. They couldn't pivot to a virtual world and couldn't pivot to working at home. I mean, we saw it in Mexico at the very beginning of the pandemic, where low-income workers and even middle-class workers had no choice but to go to work every day in a city of 20 million people during the middle of the pandemic. So things that affect workplace conditions and workplace operations also affect public health and national security. So by that token and by that analysis, I think that definitely it's come to the forefront a lot more knowing that this is really an issue of of public health and of of great interest to the country itself. Just an area that I'm personally curious about is the bond markets in Latin America. So I know March saw Chile become the first nation to issue a sustainability-linked bond. And, you know, its interest, it's pegged to the country's climate goal performance. Are you anticipating other countries in the region follow suit? I hope so. I mean, Chile has always been a bit novel in its regulatory reform and and certain legislative initiatives that it has. So I expect that they will lead this process. I hope others do. It's a very, very interesting product. And anything that will help grow the capital markets locally is desirable, obviously, for lawyers. But it's an interesting product and hopefully we'll see more. The most important thing is to get the legislation right and to get the regulations right around how these are issued and what they're supposed to do and how how they're supposed to be measured. So hopefully there'll be some thoughtful processes around how to implement them locally. To stick on the topic of bonds, so you know that we're seeing the private sector, it's becoming more involved in the issuance of uh, green bonds in Latin America. And when these are being issued, investors need to evaluate the ESG credibility of the issuers. What reputational risks should investors be prioritizing when they're doing this issuer screening? I think looking at it from a perspective of, is this real or is this a marketing ploy? Is this the type of company that can and should be issuing these bonds? I mean, we've, we've all heard stories of companies that by definition of what they do is bad for the environment, yet they're issuing green bonds. So I think there's a lot of skepticism about this product in particular. And I think over the next couple of years, we'll see a lot more scrutiny on them as to how to measure performance, how to evaluate whether this is greenwashing, whether this is creating a product to reputational position in the marketplace versus something that's truly about environmental, social, and governmental change. I think there's a lot of skepticism around them. I mean, we're seeing it even in the U.S. with new SEC disclosures that it's, it's important to get the measurement right and to develop metrics and abilities to evaluate that these companies are actually doing what they promise to do. In something you mentioned earlier, we were speaking about governments in uh, the region. We touched on regional stability not being a given in Latin America, whether it's nationwide corruption or political instability. What are some of the obstacles that you and your clients are typically facing when it comes to staying on top of this rapidly changing landscape? One, you've got to read about political events and legislative change and legal change in 20 markets. So it's a constant process of update 
and staying on top of things. And also the pace of change is quick. If the IRS makes a change in the tax laws, there's a period of comment, there is a clear time for implementation and revision and careful consideration of the legislation. You know, you see it coming down the road. It's going to come down the road for a year and everybody's prepared for it. And there are clear rules on how to comply. In many jurisdictions in LATAM, the, the change is overnight. The legislation is passed from one day to the next. There's no implementing regulations behind it. It's effective immediately, and nobody knows how to comply or what to do to comply with, with the new laws. So it's exciting but frustrating at the same time. But it's just a constant process of staying on top of the market and talking to people. Before the pandemic, we spent a lot of time in-country in the larger markets, and a lot of that was obviously client interface and seeing clients and visiting clients. A lot of it is information gathering to make sure that we know what what the hotspots are, what's coming down the pike as far as political or regulatory change and have a lot of friends in a lot of places to make sure that we stay on top of it. Interesting you mentioned what's coming down the pike in terms of political events. So like I know Colombia, Chile and Brazil, they have elections planned for next year. I'm guessing you're watching these pretty closely. Yes, very much so. And we belong to several sort of think tanks and quasi-governmental organizations that bring speakers in from time to time. So we're on top of these a lot. And, you know, it depends on the direction of the wind and who you're talking to. And you have to understand where this person fits in the macroeconomic world as to what their opinion will be on matters. So, yes, we're watching elections very closely just because they're highly charged in all three instances and talking to people on the ground. But typically lawyers, or I like to think of us in some ways as canaries in the Minecraft, we hear from people first. Whenever there's concern over regime change, the clients call about a year in advance because they want to try to figure out alternative structures, diversifying their asset base, entering a new market. So we typically hear from people a long time before the elections start. So that's interesting to see that develop. And my career has been long enough that I've seen that in three or four major transformative elections in Latin. It's interesting from a client perspective, probably not from their individual perspective to have to worry about diversifying their asset base or potentially leaving their homes. But it's interesting for us to see how things eventually settle down, except in the case of Venezuela, unfortunately, that things always do get better. And then, like I said, the pace of change, as quickly as it can deteriorate, it can bounce back in under a year, as we've seen in other markets like Brazil. Aside from the topic of elections, are there any other upcoming regional events you're watching or you'd advise others to be keeping an eye on? I don't think you could get bigger than the election in Brazil or the one in Colombia, given the candidates and some of their public rhetoric. Uh, it's pretty interesting stuff. Also, the Constitutional Convention in Chile is just fascinating from any number of perspectives. There's a lot of literature out there that this is a new left, that this is not a left. I, this is not me talking. I'm not sure if I agree with this, but at least this is what I'm reading, that this is a left that's not a communist left in the tradition of, of Cuba or even in Venezuela, but this is a new left that talks about indigenous rights, women's rights, issues of equality and inclusion that haven't been seen before in other leftist movements. So I think it'll be interesting to see how that works out and, and what happens, but it will be interesting to follow in the sense that people are calling this new and it does have characteristics that we haven't seen before. It's not a 1930s leftist model or even a 1970s model. It's certainly a 21st century model. 
And uh, I know you frequently travel to the region. I'm guessing that was put on hold uh, with the uh, pandemic. But are you noticing just like across the board, especially with in terms of sustainable investing, a resumption in travel and that's accelerating deals again? Yes, we've started traveling again about two months ago internationally, which is exciting because our practice, as I mentioned, is very face-to-face. You need to see people face-to-face. You need to hear what they're thinking. You need to see what's happening in the street. You need to watch the local news. So for us, it's very exciting to be back traveling. I don't know if it's increased the deal-making. We certainly were incredibly busy in, in 2020 and 2021. But I think that it's sort of getting back to normal. And certainly we're seeing professional advisors back in their offices and in country and people coming back to meet again, which is exciting and hopefully not going to take a step back for any reason going forward. But people are a lot more comfortable in traveling. There are relaxation of rules on entry and exit, not necessarily exit so much coming back to the U.S., but certainly for entry into Brazil, for example, they've dropped the testing requirement and other mask mandates and things like that. So it, it's become a return to normal. But obviously, still, I keep my mask in my pocket at all times just in case. But we definitely noticed a difference recently, and, and I'm excited for that. I've been hearing a lot of interest recently in terms of industrial investing regarding nearshoring coming to Latin America and, you know, especially Mexico. Is that something that's also occurring with ESG investments, sustainable investing? The region is ripe for it, right? I mean, as far as particularly environmental issues, the impact of climate change in Central America that's happening immediately and has been happening for a couple of years. Also with social issues, as I mentioned, given the the nature of the economies locally and governments, particularly issues around independent directors were, were not a thing in LATAM two or three years ago. Chief compliance officers, even ESG officers in the local companies. It's exciting to see this new development, but it's a region that's right for it and one that can benefit the most Again, with respect to working conditions, access to vocational training, diversity and inclusion. Odd thing to mention, but certainly in countries like Brazil, it is becoming much more to the forefront and for many, many good reasons. And I think that you'll see that spread to other markets as well. But it's just a region with that's multi-ethnic, that has a demographic that the average age in many countries is in the early 20s. It's a young population. It's a technologically savvy population. It's also a population that cares about renewable energy and cares about access to energy and access to connectivity. So all of these issues with the young populations, with the growing populations, with the growing economies, it's just a very exciting place to be for these issues and probably the markets that can benefit from it the most. Well, Randy, thank you so much for sharing your expertise with our Risk Watch audience. Just for our listeners who are interested in following your work and even your latest writing, should they check out your LinkedIn and profiles on Morrison Forrester's website? Yes, mofo.com. And you'll get a, a lot of information about our ESG practice as a whole. I mean, our offices in San Francisco and Silicon Valley were doing work in this region and in, in this area 20 years ago. They are not bandwagon joiners. They are people that founded these practices that teach it at the major universities in the U.S. And they are first and foremost experts on ESG and its implementation in the U.S. market. We're the ones interested in Latin America and what's going on in Latin America. 
but it's really a worldwide initiative as well. So our website has a lot of available resources on venture capital, Latin American private equity, but any number of resources on ESG. And I'll just close by saying for any of our listeners who are interested in learning more about Morrison and Forrester's Latin America practice, please check out our November 2021 interview with Latin America desk co-chair Rudy Smith-Lang. Thank you very much, Randy. No, thank you. It was a pleasure.